the Oakdale Christian Centre podcast. During the summer months, members of our church volunteer to lead the Thursday night Christian Growth Bible Studies. This week, Nick looks into how we can fear a loving God. The main reading is Psalm 34. The Bible talks about many ways of God and how we should see him. We're told that he's the good shepherd. We're told to view him as a good father, uh, as a king, uh, and so on. But there's, there's one aspect uh, that, that has bothered me for a little while. We're told to fear the Lord. I'm not sure why, but God has been prodding me quite persistently for the last six months about this. Uh, proving God's great sense of humour, when I started praying about what he wanted me to talk about tonight, he said, let's talk about fearing the Lord. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about something that I'm not entirely sure I still I completely understand still. <laughs> but we're going to go and we're going to have an attempt at it. I struggle with this concept of fearing the Lord because he's not my boss and he's not my slave master. We're told to think of him as friend. Um, John 15, which is reading one. You are my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father I have made known to you. Uh, Or as a brother, and that's um, Mark 3, reading 2. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and he told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Mm-hmm. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. We know that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The key word that jumps out at me there is love. He loved the world. One of the books uh, I read last year um, was Case for Christ. And I know most of you have have at least heard of that one. One of the areas that it looks into is just how gruesome the crucifixion was. (laughs) If you've not looked into it, it's pretty horrendous. There's there's quite a lot of uh, sermons uh, I've heard, and and it's horrific. My reaction to that is to be grateful. Mm. To try and love him back, right, to try yeah. to serve him better. Absolutely. But how can I fear someone who is willing to do all of that for me? Mm. I suspect I'm not the only person that has an issue with the idea of fearing the Lord. So, what does the Bible actually say? Uh, reading 3, Proverbs 9. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Mm. Teach a just man and he will increase and learn. We the Lord is beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So it's wise to fear the Lord. That's, that's something that comes up in Proverbs quite a lot. Yep. Uh, Psalm 33, reading 4. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So the psalmist fears the Lord. But is it a command? Uh, reading 5, Deuteronomy... Uh, Deuteronomy 6. 
Be careful that you do not forget the Lord mm. who brought you out of Egypt, Hallelujah. out of the land of slavery. Did, yeah. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. <laughs> Sounds like a command to me. Yeah. So is this just an Old Testament thing? Uh, reading 6, Luke 12. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and, the, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. That's Jesus talking there. I'm not going to argue with him. He kind of knows what he's doing there. That's right. Um, Let's go right to the end of the Bible and see what that says. Uh, reading 7, Revelation 19. And the four and twenty elders and four beasts fell down and worshipped God, that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and all ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of many thundering, saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent, reigneth. As a side note, can you imagine how exciting it's going to be to be part of that crowd? Quite something, isn't it? So there's no, there's no two ways about it, really. We are commanded to fear the Lord. Even Jesus says it. I picked five readings. I found so many, many more that talk about us fearing the Lord. But what does it mean? So it's a command, it's wise, both New and Old Testaments talk about it. It's inescapable. We can't get out of it. It's not something that could be put down to interpretation. It's something as, as followers, as Christians, that we have to understand. But still, how can we fear, fear this amazing, loving God? At face value, it's quite a conflict. One of the devotionals uh, that I, I, I was reading this year uh, used uh, an illustration which I'm shamelessly going to steal. Have, absolutely. Uh, have you ever heard of the painting Virgin and Child with Saints Jerome and John Dom, Dominic? Ever heard of that one? Yeah. By Filipino Lippi. I, I knew, I knew how, how high cultured you were. It looks like that. Yeah, that one, everyone recognised that. Okay. Um, it was painted in the 15th century uh, for a family chapel. Now, if you've never heard of it, you're not going to know what's a little bit unusual about it. For over 500 years, art critics have criticised this picture for looking, well, a bit odd. I'm not sure if you can tell. Uh, I certainly can't. Um, if you look at it... <laughs> if you look at it, the... Um, the perspective is a little bit wrong. It looks like the people are about to fall out of the canvas at you. And it looks like sort of the mountains in the background were a little bit overpowering. That's what art critics said anyway. It wasn't until the 1960s, so this painting had been painted 500 years earlier, that uh, a particular art critic realised it wasn't the perspective of the painting that was wrong. It was the perspective of the viewer. Yeah. The idea is that the painting is designed to be hung in a chapel. Mm. The way it was hung in the National Gallery was you were looking at it straight on. Yeah. If viewers got on their knees, mm. 
the whole picture moves into the right perspective. Yeah. How about that? A blind guy giving an art lesson. <laughs> so it's all to do with perspective. So having the right perspective when we think about this idea of fearing God uh, is, is absolutely key. In Isaiah 55, it tells us that God's perspective on things are not the same as ours. So let's see if we can try and get this the right perspective of fearing the Lord and see if it gets rid of this apparent conflict. So what is fear? Uh, my thesaurus says that similar words are terror, dread, um, and, and anxiety. Interestingly enough, it didn't use the word afraid. There's a difference between being fearful and being afraid. And being afraid is that emotion, that gut reaction when something happens. It's quite often an involuntary thing. Uh, being afraid can sometimes be totally irrational. I'm going to tell you about something I am afraid of. You could almost say it's a phobia. I am afraid of tomato sauce. The idea of it being anywhere near me makes my toes curl. The smell makes me feel sick. If tomato sauce. Tomato sauce. is like that. Yeah. At home, I've been known to leave the table if the smell gets too strong when Chloe and Gemma have it. It's a complete gut reaction. In my head, I know it can't be that bad, but it doesn't change my reaction to it. It's not that I just don't like it, it's that I'm physically afraid of it. The Bible does tell us to be peculiar people. I'm not entirely sure it meant in that way. So going back to fear, the... The words from my thesaurus are all to do with understanding. It's an intellectual thing. It's, it's, it's because you understand the consequences of something. It's a, the fear of heights makes sense because you may fall and hurt yourself. <laughs> a fear of spiders or snakes makes sense because they may be poisonous. The Bible tells us lots and lots of times to fear the Lord, but interestingly enough, it never says to be afraid of him. Not like I could find in my version anyway. In fact, almost the opposite. Uh, Psalm 56 is reading 8. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they may be many that fight against me, O thou most high. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. And how many times when uh, the Lord or an angel turns up and speaks to someone, is the first words, be not afraid. God doesn't make mistakes like this in the Bible. The distinction between being afraid and being fearful is not a mistake. This is because being afraid is an emotion. It's that gut reaction when someone comes near you with a bottle of Heinz. <laughs> it's, fearing the Lord is, is, makes sense when you have a full understanding of who the Lord is and getting the right perspective on it. He doesn't want us to be afraid of him. He wants us to have an understanding, uh, intellectual understanding of just who he is, as best we can in this world anyway. Do you see, do you see what I'm getting at? Do you see the difference? Yeah. So this could be quite a big topic. So I've picked uh, four aspects that we're, we're going to delve into a little bit. Um, the first is father. We're told to consider God as our father. 
Uh, I try to use the Bible as, as a bit of a guide when it comes to being what a good father is, when, I, when I'm sort of bringing out Chloe and Ewan. So let's have a little look at what it says. Uh, our Father in heaven loves us. Uh, I'm sure we've already read, uh, most of us have read this reading at some point. Uh, Matthew 7, it's reading 9. Okay, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. When, when I was thinking of a father's love, uh, this was the reading you know, that, that jumped out at me. But it's part of a father's job to discipline their children. Hebrews 12, reading 10. You have not yet resisted the church striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, the scourge, even son whom he receives. If you endure chastening God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chasing, of which all have become partakers, when you are illegitimate and not sons, more <coughs> we have had the human father who corrects us and we pay them respect, shall we not much more readily be subject subjection to the Father of Spirit and live? For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seems best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the presence, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Whether you agree with physical discipline or not, that's not really the point mm -hmm. of this. What it's getting at is that both us earthly fathers and heavenly father have to be able to discipline our children. We're back to the difference again between being fearful and being afraid. I don't want Chloe or Ewan to be afraid of me, but I do want them to fear the consequences of their actions if they do something I tell them not to. As children of God, we also need to, need to fear the consequences of our actions. God doesn't tend to give uh, to reach down with uh, a, a physical hand and give us a clip round the ear, however, however much we deserve it sometimes. But when we do something wrong, he will definitely let you know if you're listening. A father uses fear of the consequences of actions to, uh, to bring up children with good character. That's what I'm trying to do with my two anyway. Uh, children who know the difference between right and wrong. Our relationship with our Father God is not just about being able to talk to him. 
It's all about growing in our reflection of him. The idea of uh, God, our Heavenly Father, is such a beautiful concept. As children of God, we are meant to take on the characteristics of God, most clearly spelt out in the life of Jesus. Um, if you've read any parenting books, uh, I, I tried and gave up, um, one of the key things they'll talk about is making sure that your children know the consequences of their actions, that, that, the, that they have an understanding that if they do this, then this will be the consequence. And they also tell you to don't just suddenly impose a, a consequence, you have to give them a warning. They have to know they're about to cross the line. Uh, as, we're going, as we're about to uh, discover in some of our readings later on, God always warns his children when they're about to cross the line. And there's a number of places in the Bible where it spells out the exact consequences of, of disobeying him. Uh, the next thing I'd like us to think about is the exalted king. Uh, reading 11, uh, Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. The Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid, amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. Um, as Dave said uh, on Sunday, in the UK, our monarch is mostly just a figurehead now. We don't really live under a monarchy in the same way that the Bible understands uh, the idea of king. But as Christians, we do. We have a king of kings and a lord of lords. And for us, it shouldn't be our, our modern monarchy. When you look back in history to the idea, sort of more how the Bible understands kingship, the concept of kingship was very different. What the king said went, judge and jury. There's so many times in the Bible where you look at the, the actions of the king of Israel and it impacts the whole of the nation. When the king has life and decisions uh, to make, um, the Bible also quite clearly shows there are good and bad kings. <laughs> when a petitioner comes before the king, they don't do it casually. Quite often they'll go before the king because it's the last place that they have a chance of getting justice. As, as, our, um, as our personal king, when we go to God in prayer, we shouldn't be afraid. God doesn't want that. In many ways, God is the only person we can turn to and not put on a pretense, not put on a mask. We can absolutely you know, spill our hearts, spill our, 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 our fears and our worries to him. Absolutely, and he wants us to do that. And, and as Dave said on Sunday, he wants us to be in communication all the time with him. But we should have a real understanding of exactly who it is we're talking to. We're talking to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when you think, think about it like that, it's a bit mind-blowing, really. The ability to pray to God in the way the Bible describes is such an honour. Mm. I'm sometimes guilty of taking prayer for a bit for granted, mm. almost treating it like a chat with my, my best mate. Mm. And that's not to say that's a wrong way to think about it, but being aware of just who we're praying to oh, is so important. Yeah. Right. 
The idea of the exalted king leads me on to uh, the third point I wanted to bring up, the authority of God. God created the, uh, the universe and the world that we live on. We live here because he allows us to. As Psalm 139 says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. You, uh, you've, you, formed, you know what I'm about to say before I say it. You know my plans. We're meant to be living to his plan. As king of our lives, he has the authority to change our plans, to change our lives, to turn our plans upside down. To be part of God's great, amazing plan is pretty uh, um, brilliant, really. But when you think about it, there's an element of intrepidation that when we surrender ourselves and when we put ourselves in his hands, it's quite quite an undertaking that we're we're signing up to in that sense. I'm quite comfortable with my life, with work, with, with my church situation here, with, with the way I live. But as followers of God, uh, and as we've surrendered our lives to him, he has the authority to change our lives in ways that we can't imagine. Because in the end, it's not our plans that we should be following. It's God's plan for us. Understanding God's authority over our life hopefully isn't scary. It's not, it's not that good reaction of being afraid. But it's... it's it's respecting the authority of God to say, right, I've got these Bibles, they need to be in China, and I pick you. I was talking with uh, Jem's uncle uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they had a visitor uh, who, you know, uh, who came and did a, a, a talk at their church. Uh, and it was a lady who um, had been pretty much called out of the blue to go and work in Uganda. Now, that's not necessarily the safest place in the world, but God has protected this lady in the most amazing ways even so, when you surrender to God, you are surrendering to the authority of God. There's a great interaction in the New Testament that, uh, that kind of shows someone really getting this authority thing. Uh, Matthew 8, uh, reading 12. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant, let servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grieving, tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth. And to another come, and he cometh. And to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, so no, not in Israel. And I say unto you, sorry, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Got carried away there. (laughs) The centurion showed uh, great faith, but he also showed a real true understanding of the authority of Jesus. Uh, the final point or perspective that I, I wanted to, to look at is rejection. Now, I could have gone with respect, because quite often that's uh, a way of us thinking about how we fear the Lord. But I went through rejection. Uh, our relationship with the Lord is the most amazing thing, but it comes with a responsibility. Earlier, I I said I looked for places in the Bible where it says, be afraid of God, and I didn't find any. I did find a lot of places where the people were afraid of God. Um, The first recorded instance is Adam, right back to Genesis. Uh, Genesis 3, uh, it's reading 13. 
And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to them, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. <laughs> There's a bit of a common theme, actually. When you look into the times where people were afraid of God, it wasn't because of their understanding of who God was. It was because they disobeyed him. They'd rejected him. The times when people were afraid, when they were going against what God had told them, when they had rejected them, as Adam shows us exactly in this reading. He clearly knew he'd done something wrong and was afraid of God. And just like a child, when he gets found out, he tries to blame someone else. <laughs> I always find it quite interesting that, that non-believers think of Christians as these people that are mindlessly just following the words in a book. Or actually, personal responsibility and taking responsibility for your own actions is actually a key theme. One thing that keeps uh, jumping out at me when I was looking into this, this idea of fearing the Lord is that people that have heard about God and maybe even believe that Jesus was the Son of God but have consciously made a decision that they don't want him to be king of their life, that they don't want to follow him, are more at risk of God's wrath than people that have uh, not, not heard the message or don't know anything. There is no sin too big for God to give, forgive. There's no person so bad that God cannot forgive them. However, he is God, and he has a much different, much bigger perspective on, all the, on, on these things than we have. There are situations that he has to do something pretty dramatic to try and change the, yeah. the, the, the outcomes. Even if the short-term result isn't actually very pleasant and you can't take him for a ride, he is holy, holy, holy. And if someone continually rejects him, there is a point where he will do something fairly dramatic. What in, God, what in God's word makes me think this? Uh, 2 Peter 2, uh, reading... 14. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, um, of the lawless, for that for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Goes goes back to what Mike was saying <coughs> last week. It's a really hard thing to read, isn't it, that? It makes me worry about those that I grew up in church with, with friends and family who do know the word, who do know the difference between right and wrong, but have chosen to go the world's way. 
my uh, my reading plan, um, my de- my daily reading was recently going through Jeremiah, and one of the um, one of the readings, one of the chapters, really was a bit of a wake up call for me. It stopped me, and it really gave me a bit of a kick. If you've read much of the Old Testament books like uh, One and Two Kings and Chronicles, you'll see the pe- thing uh, the people that are meant to be gods who know the word of the Lord are constantly rejecting him. In fact, you could summarise much of the story of Israel as God's chosen people are set apart for him, uh, for him and are given a uh, promised land. God teaches them how to live. When they follow him, stuff goes well. But most of the time they don't. And God uses nearly anything to get their attention. Yeah. By the time we get to Jeremiah, he's pretty much had enough. He basically throws them out of the promised land and uh, for a whole generation until... One or two people left in the left left the, of Israel turned back to the right ways of living. You see the same kind of thing in Noah. Even then, even after Jeremiah and and, and the exile, I've heard the life uh, death of Jesus described as God's final or God's main attempt to get the attention of His people and of the world. But it was chapter fourteen of Jeremiah that um, that made me sit up and uh, and take note. Uh, Jeremiah 14, reading 15. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O the hope of Israel, his saviour, in time of trouble, why should he be like a singer, a stranger in the land, and like a traveller who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should he be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Mm -hmm. Thus says the Lord to this people. Thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. He He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offerings and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Do you see why I sat up? <coughs> Do not pray for them. Yes, Crumbs. That's uh, yes. that makes for sobering reading, doesn't it? Mm. Let's put it in context. God, God here. So the beginning part of that reading, it's it's uh, Jeremiah trying to get God to change his mind, and God saying. No, they've gone too far. He's speaking about Israel, his people, the people who were given the word of God and broke it time after time after time after time. He tried so many ways to get their attention, but it gets to this point in Israel's history where God says enough is enough. So, does this apply to those of us who are born again? Will God say enough is enough about us? My reading in this area says not. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, anyone who belongs to Christ is a new person. The past is forgotten and, the per- and everything is new. If you are truly born again and, you, and are changed, then the way I read this is that it should be impossible for you to lose your salvation. Yes, we can still mess up and we can still disappoint our Father God. It's not a get out of jail free card. No. Uh, someone else said something similar to that. I think, he, I think his name was Paul. <laughs> uh, being 
born again means that we should be constantly working on our relationship with God. That's right. It should be Absolutely. impossible for us to, re- uh, to reject God. Mm. We do, though, have to be aware of the responsibility that having a relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords means to us. Right. Yes, amazing joy, but also an understanding of the impact that this relationship has for us mm. and our response to it. I guess a study on fearing the Lord could be a bit depressing. <laughs> However, hopefully tonight you won't be going out going... Crumbs, that was a bit grim. One of the undercurrents that that hopefully has come out from the readings and from what we've been thinking about tonight is that God really does have the best intentions for us. But the best for us is when we follow his plans for us. Uh, A song uh, we used to sing when I was was in the choir down in Cardiff um, kept coming to my mind when I was preparing this. It's based on our final reading, which is uh, Psalm 91, reading 16. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. God isn't capricious. He doesn't do stuff just on a whim. He's not the wrathful God that a lot of uh, a lot of non-believers think the Old Testament describes, but he's also not someone who will just let us do what we want no. without consequences. He's holy, and we are called to emulate him. So, does fearing the Lord make sense? Being afraid? No, absolutely not. Doesn't make a sense at all. But going back to what we said before, having an intellectual understanding of just who the Lord is, yeah, actually. You know what? It does make sense, Wonderful. and that and appreciating just what that relationship means, and having a healthy fear does make sense. Right. It also says in the Bible, with God on our side, who else should we fear? Yeah. And along with the psalmist, we can say, under the cover of His wings, you'll find me, shielded by His faithfulness. Wonderful. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. To find out more about our church, visit www oakdalechristiancentre.org